Welcome to the Lighthouse Community Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope today's teaching will encourage you in your faith and help you develop an increasing desire to walk with God. Let's listen in. I always have this fear of walking on the stage that I'm going to like miss the step here and everything's going to go flying, you know, that, that, that fear of walking in front of people and everything's going to, you know, just fall apart. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Lighthouse, and it is really, truly my pleasure to have a chance to, uh, to be here with you uh, this morning and to, to bring God's Word. Um, so uh, as, as we jump into it, you're in Colossians chapter 1, and that's where we are uh, this morning. If you're joining us online, just want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, consider yourself welcomed, uh, given an awkward hug. Uh, put your kids in kids' ministry. You found a comfortable place. Hopefully, you have a cup of coffee and a donut at home or wherever you're watching in your group. Uh, but I want to say welcome. Glad that you're here. If you're here in person, I hope you've experienced grace in a new way as you walk through our doors uh, here at Lighthouse. And uh, we're glad that you're, uh, you're a part of it. Like I said, my name is Matt. And, although, and, and I'm not from here. Uh, and although I'm not from here, I've been a lot of places in my life. Uh, I've traveled uh, to a lot of different places. And uh, the first time I ever traveled anywhere outside of the continental United States, I was in high school and uh, went, to, uh, went with a group of people and we spent some time uh, overseas and the initial part of the trip was flying to a country uh, called Brazil in South America. Uh, so I'm with a group of people and we are in the Orlando airport getting ready to fly to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And I'm standing there in the airport, and I remember as I stood there, I, I wish I had a good excuse, but I just don't. I wasn't paying attention. And I must have been staring at a fly or something, but suddenly I looked up, and I was standing by myself. The whole team of people that I was with were gone, and I was kind of, I was a little bit freaked out, and I was a little bit, you know, kind of uncomfortable with it, and I see Matt laughing because you've probably been not paying attention, but it's one of those things where you're not paying attention, and I wish I could say that I had a cell phone, but this is like the late 80s, early 90s, and cell phones didn't exist, and there was nothing to distract me in that, but the fact is, is that I found myself in a moment of kind of going, I'm not sure what's going on, but so I looked out at my boarding pass, and I looked at it, I thought, yeah, flight, that match, yeah, good. So I went down that jetway, got on the plane from Orlando to Rio, and uh, walking down this 747, two aisles, and I'm, as I'm walking down, I'm looking for people in my group going, there's got to be someone. I saw nobody on that plane. Nobody. And I got down about two-thirds of the way back on that aisle, and I thought, well, maybe they're just in the back of the plane. I didn't see their boarding passes. I'm not sure where they are. So I sat down. The plane, the plane took off. We're in the air. The, flight, uh, the, the, the pilot turns off the stuff, fasten seatbelts, and I get up, and I'm thinking, I'm going to go find these people. Start walking around, and I didn't see anybody. There was nobody on that plane that I knew, and I must have looked like a, 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 I don't know what I looked like, but I'm sure it wasn't pretty, as I frantically walked up and down, I'm 17 years old, I'm, uh, I, you know, just a kid, and I'm just like walking, if you're 17, you're still a kid. I was just a kid walking down that aisle and going, I don't know what's going on, I'm not sure what's going on, so I just remember I sat down in my seat, and I just felt defeated. I had that moment of going, just that panic, and I must have been sweating, I must have pushed my hair, I had hair back then, out of my face, and just trying to, trying to get everything together, and I couldn't. And I sat there, and probably an hour into the flight, I must have been like, I don't know if I was crying or what I was doing, but I was sitting there, and all of a sudden I felt this tap on my shoulder, and I thought, what? And I looked back, it was my team leader. Woohoo! 
oh, wow, I must have jumped out of that seat and given him a great big hug or something, but I certainly was excited to see him, and I jumped up, and, and he was there, he's like, dude, I, you know, just checking on you, you know, you okay? And I, I said, he said, hey, you're not, why aren't you with us? And I, and I said, oh, well, I, you know, I kind of, I didn't say, I just, I just said, hey, I'm, 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 I'm on the flight, it's a good thing, so we'll come with you, grab your stuff. Okay, great, so I grabbed my stuff, and we walked to the front of the plane, up the staircase to first class. If you've ever been on a 747, it's upstairs on this plane. And so we walked up there, and they, they you know, so I, I joined the, the team up there. But I have to tell you that maybe you can identify with that feeling of panic, that everybody has somehow just abandoned you. You kind of feel like you've been, uh, you know, suddenly left and kind of, you, you're just kind of, everyone's just disappeared. What do you do? What do you do? What did they know that I don't know? What is it that I'm going to miss out on? Will I be stuck in Brazil for the rest of my life. Why didn't somebody grab me and tell me, hey, we're going this way, and just instead of just leaving me standing? And it's pretty, it's pretty uh, unpleasant experience. And while it seems grim in the moment, it eventually passed, uh, and everything was okay, and I made it where I was supposed to go. But uh, in, in, in this time, this whole situation, I got to tell you that over that period of time, there was a sense for me of just feeling overwhelmed. Just the burden of life, the burden of what was happening around me was huge. I felt what seemed like I was des- what was going on was desperately unfair. <laughs> and I use that word carefully because the word fair is not a word that I like very much because fair is we all die and go to hell. That's what we deserve. The Bible says we deserve death, separation from God because of our sin. But it was desperately unfair in that moment. And I remember thinking that. And I remember I felt like I was forgotten. I felt like I was alienated from my team. I remember just feeling that separation and I go. And in response, I started to make these plausible arguments in my mind of what, of what happened, right? Trying to make up stories and going, this is what, what happened. This is where they went. They were abducted by aliens. They were all kidnapped. They, were, they decided to go to, down to the beach. I don't know what it was, but all these great things. And then my leader found me, and the light came on. And everything was incredibly clear. I couldn't see what I was missing, and I, I could see what I was missing, and I wasn't scared anymore. I wasn't, didn't have that fear anymore. And this week, I spent some time searching for the right words to really encapsulate this feeling. The, feel, the words I came up with are isolated, detached, estranged, distant, separated. How about alienated? And I land on that word in the end because that is the word that the Bible uses. That's the word that Scripture uses in Colossians chapter 1. And if you haven't found it yet, Colossians is probably about 85% of the way through your Bible. Uh, and if you're, if you're there on your device, go ahead and click over there. We're going to read through it. But if you don't, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, make sure you grab one. We have some Bibles that are out of the connections, uh, connection booth out there. You can grab one out there and someone will help you uh, grab one. If you don't have a Bible, we want to make sure you have one as well. But we're going to read... Just the first part of Colossians chapter 1, real quick here, uh, starting in verse 21. It says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul is the writer of this book, and we've talked about that, but, but for the Gentile Christians, this was not the first time that they would have experienced 
this idea of alienation. In fact, if you look back at Ephesians 2, the concept of, of, being an, of, of being alienated would have been something that they would have been very familiar with for a very different reason. The passage clearly talks about how they would have been alienated due to their race. As Gentiles, they were not Jews. And yet it's possible that these, that these Gentiles in Colossae would have had knowledge of that, but that's not necessarily what's happening here, what he's pointing to in this passage. And perhaps they would have had that resonating in their mind as they read this letter from Paul. But it's more likely that they would have heard Paul referring to the spiritual problem of alienation, that spiritual problem, that, that thing that keeps them separated from God. When somebody is alienated, they usually do experience what I described in the words above. When I was just talking about some of those words that I used, and we talked about some of those words that there, but let me give you a couple more. How about the word powerless? Powerless. Believing that actions have no effect on the outcome. Or how about the word loneliness? The sense of lack of connectedness. Maybe you can relate to those as well. But alienation from God is not only real, but it's very dangerous. And I got to tell you that being alienated from God is probably something that might leave somebody feeling lonely. You deal with loneliness? You have those feelings in your mind, those, those senses of just feeling separated from, from everything and everything. But the sobering truth, however, is that we all one day must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the, receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Some people will find this pretty distasteful to hear. Perhaps some here in, the, in, in, in your own view are far from being alienated from God. In your own view, you're going, well, I, you know, God and I are like this. I'm not alienated from God at all, but mention words like, and if you want to try to find a way to try to break out if people really feel alienated from God, maybe you need to mention words to somebody, or I need to mention words to you like, Lord Jesus Christ. And you suddenly want to find out what it is that someone is, is in the, in the, happening in their minds. You watch the reaction, and in different times it may come across as embarrassed silence or even a, a violent argument in their minds or in their words. And why this response? Because the New Testament indicates that God's great purpose is that we should, we should honor his son. And so the Apostle Paul speaks about the need for the gospel in this way. And he really hits the nail on the head in this, in reminding people that by nature are alienated from God, and it arouses sometimes this hostility in them, this visceral reaction that goes, how dare you say that I am separated from this God? I've been so good. I've done these things for God. What is it you're talking about? It reminds them of that and brings out these responses of, of, of what it means to be alienated from God. And in verse 21, he starts out this passage in verse 21 where he says they were alienated from God. And he says it because they were hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Thankfully, this isn't the end of the story. And in the words of the immortalized Paul Harvey, it's time for the rest of the story. In verse 21, verse 21 if you're fo- it's focusing on the you phrase, the words you. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see you, the Gentile Colossian believers. And it shifts in verse 22 to where it says he, the God who they are alienated from. And the cool thing about this problem is the Gentiles have is that God is making a way for them to overcome this. 
God is in work, and he's making a way for them to overcome it. And, he's, and, and, and we see it in verse 22. Verse 21 deals with a problem. Verse 22 starts to deal with a recon- with, 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 uh, with solution. And the solution is reconciliation. I know it's a $50 word we're going to throw out there, but it's a word that Scripture uses, so we're going to address it as it comes up. And we don't have, we don't have to be left out because Christ has let you in. He has done this in Jesus, where he has included you if you say yes to him. You too can be included and not be alienated from God. But Paul's talking to these Gentile believers and saying, hey, there's things that are happening in your life that need to be addressed. He knows that the gospel perfectly fits the human condition and that we're warped and twisted and alienated from God. And the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ came to replace that alienation with reconciliation. Reconciliation has got to be one of those concepts that we don't think about. We don't use it very often in our world, and maybe it's only used in a, in a legal context. But it's one of the most amazing ideas to explore. But it's also very difficult because it's, it's a bit complex. The idea of reconciliation can be a, a bit complex if you, if you let it. I can truly only come it can, it can truly only come when it's something that comes from both sides. An agreement that we're going to fix this, that we're going to work alongside each other to come to an end, to come to an agreement, to fix this. It always requires something called humility. And if you're a human like I am, humility doesn't come easily. For me to say that I've done something wrong, to look at somebody and say those are the hardest words in the English language, which is, I am sorry. I made a mistake. That's humility. And when both sides come together, it's humility, and it requires a level of sacrifice and suffering. But here's the thing about it, is it's not sacrifice on our part. When we talk about reconciling back to God, which is what's happening here in Colossians, that is something that only God can do. Only God can do. Kind of harkens back on last week when Fritz was talking about when Fritz was talking about this very idea, talking about the covenant and how, how it meant the splitting of animals and the only one that was capable of actually fulfilling it was Jesus, to actually walk that path, it's the same thing here. It's something that only God can do. Reconciliation with the Creator requires this humility. It demands a cross. It demands Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice. The only way for us to ever be reconciled back to God was for the perfect sacrifice to die on our behalf. And that was Jesus. In fact, if you look back at verse 18, you can see it says that he is the head of the body. And if we were to look at what Paul is actually saying in, this, in these words here, he would actually say that Christ is referring to Christ's physical body. What this does emphasize is that what really happened in time and space is that Jesus died. He actually died. It's not something that happened on some soundstage in Los Angeles. It's not something that happened in a movie. It's not something that happened in the imagination of some person. It's actually something that really happened. Jesus actually did die. He really did. His, actually, his heart actually stopped beating, and the sacrifice for his life was real. And just like one death was required in the Old Testament for the Jews to to be reconciled to God, to approach God, Christ's death makes this ability to approach God possible for all of humanity. God intervened, and now the Gentiles are welcomed through Christ. 
And as a result, something amazing happens in verse 22. He offers the perfect antidote for the brokenness in our lives. The perfect antidote. So he died that you could be, that you could be seen by God as holy, as blameless, and above reproach. Those are the three phrases that it uses in there in verse 22. So those three things could happen. So we have holy. And holy basically means to be set apart. To be set apart. When you put your faith in him, you are identified as his. And no longer are you identified by the sin that you've committed. That's an amazing concept for me. Because God looks at me, and he doesn't look at me and say sinner. He looks at me and says child of mine. What an amazing transformation that is. So far as the east is from the west, that far have I removed your sin from you because a holy God cannot look on sinfulness. And so he's the one that does the work in us and he changes us. It goes on and it talks about being blameless. Such a good concept here as well, talking about blameless. I, blame is something that I am really good at. I'm happy to put what I've done or what has happened in a situation on somebody else. Something breaks or something gets broken. Yeah, it wasn't me. It was somebody else. It was my sister. It was somebody else I did. It was one of them. It was the dog. Whatever it was that, that, that happened, it's on somebody else. Because here's, here's what it means. This is an amazing concept. Whatever you've done in your life, whatever evil behavior that you have committed, whatever immoral thoughts, whatever unconscious reactions, whatever thing you've done that has hurt somebody, whatever thing you have done, just looking through your life and going, all these things that maybe I've done, all those things that you've done, every single one of them, you're blameless for. It means that no matter what you've done, you stand without a stain on your record from it. The Bible talks about how Christians and, and the church is very similar, is, is, is like Christ and his Christians and the relationship with God is very similar and like the relationship between a husband and wife. The church is called the bride of Christ. And so in, in Ephesians chapter 5, here's what it says. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Just see Christ's picture in this as we read, as we read this. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself with splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish without blemish blameless Christ's work on our behalf is so that we would be seen we can be seen as blameless and that's Christ's work in us and finally it says in verse 21 it says above reproach free of accusation. And this is a legal status before God. If you've ever watched a TV show where there's police involved, or you've ever been involved in police or some, with, with the police in some way in your life, there's something that's out there that's called a rap sheet. Rap sheet is not just say you got a bad rap, it's not reputation. It's actually an acronym. It stands for Record of Arrests and Prosecutions. And so when someone has a rap sheet, there's this record of things that are there. That is someone's record. And it's a list of things that somebody has done wrong. It's that list of every crime that you've ever committed. I'm trying to think back on my own life and go, is there a record of everything that I've ever done wrong? The Bible says that sin is any thought, word, deed, or attitude that is imperfect. That's a huge standard. I don't know about you guys, but I listen to that and go, you know what? Is that possible that I can ever overcome that? No. But through Jesus, Jesus says, I'm taking that rap sheet, and that rap sheet is wiped clean. It's empty. There's nothing on it. There's nothing there. There's nothing on it. You are innocent before God. 
And this is a total reversal of the natural state that, that, that we are before putting our faith in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are now able to say before people, before God, before anything and anybody that I am holy, I am blameless, and I am above reproach. Just let that sink in for a second. Feel the weight that's lifted when we can do that as a follower of Christ. If you're his, that is true of you. But let me throw that kind of on its head for a second and say, if you're not in Christ, that is not true of you. And yet today can be the day where you say yes to him and you say, yes, I want that. I want that. I put my faith in you and I trust you. And in response, you can be wholly blameless and above reproach before the God who you will stand before one day. I actually thought, as this goes on and we get into verse 23, if you look at it, as we move beyond this, the, the truth is for each one of us getting into verse 23, the challenge for us is this. Because of what Christ has done for you, two words, hold fast. Hold fast. Hold on to what it is that you know is true. Kind of gives a caveat here in verse 23 where it says, if indeed you continue in the faith. And in verse 23, I got to tell you that the, my first reaction was to run from this verse because it might sound a little bit difficult because suddenly it sounds like all these things that have led up to it have been, this is what God does in you. This is what God does through you. And suddenly it gets into verse 23 and it says, if indeed you continue in the faith. And so it's a little bit difficult. And it's not to imply that you can lose your salvation by, by it saying, if you continue. So far, as we've seen, everything is pointed back to, to Christ. And, and all of a sudden, it comes to this, and we go, what is going on here? Here's the point of what Paul's saying. Paul is not talking about our effort here, but rather our dependence on Christ recognizing him as the sacrifice, recognizing him as the one who's capable of fulfilling what it is that's happened in our lives and our dependence on him. And I read this week, and it really kind of helped me understand this a little bit in getting through this here, where if you look at this passage and you look at it kind of like a sandwich, and you see the sandwich and you've got the bread on, on, on both sides, and it is Christ who starts the journey and it's Christ who ends the journey. So why is it that it's not Christ that is there in the midst of the journey? He's the one that carries us through. He's the one that walks us through from beginning to end. And as we go through this in verse 23, let's read it one more time. It says, if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The bread of the sandwich is a statement, continue in faith and not shifting. Continue in faith and not shifting. It's making progress along the right trajectory. And since the journey is set by the one in whom you have faith, he's the one that gets us to the end. He is the one that actually is capable of seeing us to the end. And the result of it is what's in the middle of the sandwich. Those two words in there, stable and steadfast. It is actually only Christ that's capable of being stable and steadfast. We're on this journey because Christ started it. And he's the one who is truly stable and truly steadfast. So let's trust him in it. You couldn't have done it on your own. But like a tree planted with strong roots... We will grow up strong and firm, steadfast and stable. Let me be very clear here that the whole teaching of the Bible says that salvation, if you're in Christ, cannot be lost. It is yours. It is firm with you. Why? Because it is Christ, because it's held by Christ in God. It's not something that you hold, it's something that God holds. And since he holds it, it will be something that will carry on for eternity. 
And to go one step further with even more clarity, it's important to hear that I'm not talking about somebody who has made a decision to follow Christ at one time and said a prayer type thing, and now I've got fire insurance. I've got fire insurance, and somehow it's okay, and I'm just going to be fine. No, I'm talking about somebody who has genuine faith in Jesus as demonstrated by a life of dependence and trust and a growing desire to know God more and better. A life that is marked by the fruit of the Spirit, and people see you, and they see Jesus in you, and they say, I want that. I want that. I get it that Christian life is in general is not that linear and that we have moments of growth and challenge. And I'm talking about the pattern of godly living, the pattern of godly living that's set out before us. The major portion of this message is a reminder of where the Gentiles came from and how Paul is saying, hold fast. And by proxy, it's actually something that's valuable for us too, where I'm telling you the same message, to hold fast, to hold fast and follow Christ and give the message of hold fast to you. Hold fast means to remain tightly secured. It means to, to, to recognize where you are. The key is to remember that it is not about your effort to hold on, but rather the course because of what Christ has done. He steps in and he does it on our behalf. All of this gets us to verses, to starting in verse, four, or, sorry, in verse 25, where it continues on, where it says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed by it to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is in Christ in you the hope of glory. And we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all energy that he powerfully works in me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And now he gets to this last part, starting in verse two, in, verses four, in chapter two, verses four and five. And I would actually argue that everything leading up to this in chapter one, and even, even the first part of chapter two, is a bit of a preamble, kind of leading up to this point that he's saying here. And here's what it says. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. What was happening behind the scenes of this book was that there were people who were trying, working very hard to draw the people of Colossae away, the Christians of Colossae away, their hearts and minds away from the truth that they knew. And this truth for the Gentiles was something that they saw firsthand in the picture of the temple and how they saw Jesus made God reachable for them and something that was actually attainable for them. But for some reason, they were still listening to so many other people that may have been coming into their lives and actually were struggling to find the truth. And they were listening to what, to what it was was being said. And I say for some reason because it's still a problem that plagues us today. 
This is not a new problem. There are plenty of plausible arguments that may be out there that you hear, that I hear, that we hear, that are things that we're going we're gonna to try to take in and we're going to go, is it true? Is it true? Is it true when somebody says this, whatever it may be? The truth is, is that for, for many of us, there's a kernel of truth in every lie. That's what makes it plausible for us. And so as we listen to these things, I would say that, the, that we listen for that kernel of truth in there and we stick to that. In most lies, there's a hint of truth and often with, every, with, with an ever so slight twist in the end that changes the whole thing. Now, as you hear this, if you're like me, if you're like me at all in any way, you may have started thinking about the various arguments and beliefs that are pervasive in our world. Those things that maybe are constantly shifting, the, the standards of right and wrong, the standard of right, of good and bad, and how that might be constantly shifting in our world. And it seems to be, I don't know, frustrating to me. And this isn't about a political statement or anything like that at all. It's actually, there, there are lots of things that are happening in our world that should be of huge concern for you and for me. Things that we look at and go, I don't know if that's right. And you can probably easily pick one that, one that piques your interest the most, but I would actually say that the most sinister and plausible arguments that have potential to draw us away from the truth come from within. And when I say from within, I'm not talking from within my own heart, but even within the community of people that we can say we love and trust. Those plausible arguments that, that might come from within the Christian community, within churches, I'll give you an example, a couple examples. Matthew chapter 7, because the Bible talks about this. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They come in looking like you and I, but underneath that, they're actually only seeking to destroy us. How about in 2 Corinthians 11, it says, But such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Man, this outside looking good and going, man, this might make sense because it's something that looks right on the outside. How about Matthew 24? For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, even followers of Christ can be led astray by their plausible arguments. The implication is that there are some, even within the Christian community, who will lead you astray. That's a hard pill to swallow for me because I've been around the Christian community my whole life. I grew up in a church. I've been a pastor at a church for many years, and I've seen it many, many times. It's people that are telling you things like, God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be wealthy. And if you're not, you're doing something wrong. It's people that are saying things like that, are, that might be less obvious for us, where there's a slight change in a theology that maybe you're comfortable with that somehow it's shifted, like the Trinity, and there's a minor shift in there that just perverts the whole thing in a way that it seems plausible, but it's not. Or how about this, a religious group that changes a single word in a verse, and suddenly the verse changes meaning. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. As soon as you put the word a in there, the whole meaning changes, but that's not what the Bible says. It says, Jesus, the Word was God. It wasn't a God, it was God. It's a plausible argument that people are falling for, and it's there, and I'm not putting myself out of the realm of falling for things that are not true. Do you see what I mean? Do they do it on purpose? I don't know. 
I think some do. Well, they say anything to make people laugh or to get a dollar. I don't know. But I could probably make a case that some do. But I do know this. You can always tell the lies by simply knowing what the truth is. You can always tell the lies by knowing what the truth is. Shine a light in a dark room and you can see the truth of the space and you may not like it. A number of years ago, I moved to Seattle, Washington, other side of the country, uh, different, different, totally different place. And I moved there and I, was, I, was, I lived in a house and the house was connected on the same property as a, as a funeral home, as a mortuary. And this was probably built back in the 20s or 30s, an old place. And I remember this house, I remember going over to, the, over to the mortuary one day and I walked down in the basement and it was a really steep staircase, really wide, walked down, turned the light switch on and there was one light on and it was all the way back in the far corner of the room. And I remember going, Wow. This is some creepy stuff down here. I remember looking to my left and there was a door there, a white door had this, this, this translucent glass that was there and you couldn't see in and it said prep on the door. And I thought, uh, I'm not sure why. So I went over there and I, it was just me. I had to open the door and look. So I opened the door, I look in and there's this table in there. It looks like an, a steel operating table and it's there and there's all these tools and implements. It looked like someone had just kind of walked away one day and never went back. I went the other way and looked around the corner over here and there was a vault back there. It was like a bank vault and it was, it was just creepy and there was stuff in the corners. I go, what is this? And I thought, I'm freaked out by this. So I left. A little while later, I came back with a friend of mine, and we brought in with us a 2 million candle watt or candle power flashlight. And you want to talk about making a difference in a dark room. Suddenly, that light in the corner showed, oh, it's just boxes back there. Oh, those are just chairs. It's not bodies that were forgotten from 1923. It's not that at all. Nothing like that. And you look over here, and you look around the corner, and you see in that vault right there, it just looks like safety deposit box. I don't know what was in them, but I know that it just looked like safety deposit boxes that were back, that were back in there. What we see and what we can truly see is important. And when we shine the light on what we can see, it reveals it. We can see it for what it truly is. One of our teaching teams said to me this week, Christ is so truth that you cannot get away from it. So true. And that's so good. Christ is so truth that you cannot get away from it. And we shine the light on it and we have the truth and the truth comes through and we can see the lies because what the truth shining light on it and showing us what it means and what it actually looks like. But let me say this to you because I know that some of you are here like me who would like to run down the rabbit hole of understanding lies. And I would encourage you to resist that. Understanding what maybe what the lies are and how deep that lie goes and understanding what it is. Well, it might help me have a, a greater conversation. With, I'm not trying to dispel the fact that we should have some understanding, but your greater energy and time and resources should be spent on knowing the truth. Spend your energy knowing God's word because the lies will become more and more apparent. And as you go into that dark space and you shine a light on it, you're going to see it for exactly what it is, without a doubt. Immerse yourself in the truth, and the lies will be painfully apparent in the light of that. I don't say this to give you reasons to doubt trust in leaders in their Christian community. I don't, give you, I don't say this so that you're going to go back and question the podcasts that you love and the preachers that you listen to maybe throughout the week or the leaders in Lighthouse community. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is this, be discerning. 
and test what you see and what you hear against Scripture. In the words of the reading rainbow, LeVar Burton, don't just take my word for it. Go read it. Read it in the book. Know what it says. Second Timothy says, Do your best to prove yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, knowing what it says, handling it well. Scripture was written by men, average everyday men, not by some people that had amazing training, although some of them may have. But the fact is it was they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you have the ability, an average everyday person, if you're a follower of Christ, you have that same Holy Spirit in you to help reveal and understand what it says. Did you ever thought, think about it like this? The Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Colossians was guided along by the Holy Spirit as he did it. And it's that same Holy Spirit that lives in you. It's an amazing thought to know that God cares for me enough. But to do this, you've got to read the Bible. You've got to hide God's word in your heart so you might not sin against God. That, by the way, is also the battle plan for against temptation. Jesus' response when he was tempted was quoting Scripture, knowing what the Bible says, so you can war against it. The arguments may sound plausible. They may sound fine to you. Remember this. False teaching is very cruel. The nature of false teaching is cruel. It robs us of the joy and freedom that Christ loves to give. The good news is that it seems that in this passage here, the Colossian believers didn't fall for it. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 5, it says this. It says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness in your faith in Christ. It's an encouragement for me to know that it's possible for us to stand against it. And I love how Paul had been taking Epaphras' words and encouraging them to press on. I love how Paul had been praying for them, and I want to challenge you this morning with two things. I want to challenge you, first of all, based on what we've learned this morning, first, since we've been studying Colossians already, to make a point in the coming week to continue to read Colossians, to ask God's Spirit to reveal to you what it says, and asking yourself the question, what does this say about Jesus? And secondly, to pray. Prayer. To be praying for lighthouse and I'm being very selfish in saying that because that's where my vested interest is is here at lighthouse and to pray for lighthouse to pray that God would be at work in this place to pray that God would keep us from falling into false teaching that God would protect us from those who might come in and try to lead us astray by offering plausible teaching or plausible arguments to a certain end Pray for the pastors, pray for the elders, pray for the teachers, pray for the leaders in our community. Pray for each other. Pray. Those are two things that are on your connection card that you can do this week. We're going to pray here in just a second, but I want to challenge you for something. I challenge you with something. So I'm going to ask that we would bow our heads and close our eyes. And I want to challenge you to see yourself rightly. To see yourself in light of who you truly are and who, who God truly is. If you are far from God, maybe today is the day that you respond to Jesus and say yes to him as your forgiver and your leader. And if you're a follower of Christ, know that you have been included in Christ and are no longer alienated from him. But be on guard against those who might try to lead you astray. We ask this question at the end of every service. We ask the question, Jesus, what are you saying to me right now? I'll give you a moment to pray.
We want to pray for you. We want to pray for you. We're going to sing one more song. And if you want to pray, if you want somebody to pray with you, I'm going to ask you to slip out of your seat and come to the aisle. There are going to be leaders in all four corners of the room that are here to pray for you. And they can pray about any area of your life. You don't have to be embarrassed. You don't have to be afraid to step out of the aisle and to do that. Everybody needs prayer. I need prayer. You need prayer. And if you want prayer, I'm going to ask you to do that. And I'm going to pray for you and that I want you to come down. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw every person who needs prayer right now in this place. In Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 909 or 1111. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.